Welcome to the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Don, we had a very excellent conversation today with Neil Jacobson from the Atlantica Center for Energy. Neil is an energy analyst, a part-time energy analyst with the organization, and we had a great conversation about the current state of the energy sector in Atlantic Canada and the future uh, of the energy sector and its role as an economic driver across Atlantic Canada. Yeah, Neil uh, brings a, a very uh, long track record of service uh, to the public um, and uh, I think most recently worked for the city of St. John, did he not? Yes, he did. Yeah, and so most you know, this follows a, a pretty interesting conversation that we had with Noya a couple of weeks ago um, that really, I hope, hope informed people about when we will um, move to a fully green economy. We're going to be using oil and gas for some time, obviously. Uh, Neil reiterated that point and uh, talked about some of the substitutes uh, that are likely to come along. Pretty interesting, given the announcement uh, this past week of the hydrogen um, uh, work that's being done in the region. Yes, that's right. And I think people would be well advised to keep on top of this issue. It is very complicated. And one of the things that frustrates me is we're not getting good information out of government or any source on the cost of the transition to green energy. In fact, some politicians are suggesting it will somehow cost nothing and actually be uh, an economic, uh, uh, be beneficial in the sense that costs will go down and things like that. So I think it really is challenging and we start to scratch at some of those things with Neil in our conversation today. But you're right, there are a number of exciting new energy sources like hydrogen, uh, other renewables uh, that could be uh, part of our energy mix in the future. My concern is that we continue in this region to see economic benefit from the energy sector, because one of the bad outcomes here could be we shut down all of our energy development uh, sectors and just import our energy from other jurisdictions like uh, electricity from Quebec. And I think that would be a big mistake if we ended up losing the economic benefits of the energy sector here in the region. Yeah, and I'm most excited about hydrogen. We've been uh, talking about hydrogen in Canada for a long time. In fact, uh, I had a, a friend who was one of the pioneers in hydrogen in the province of New Brunswick. You may have known him, David Wagner, uh, who uh, worked out of Fredericton and uh, was doing, I guess, a demonstration project is the best way I could put it, of uh, developing hydrogen power. Um, the problem with hydrogen right now, according to Neil, is that the cost to produce it is so high. And uh, they've got to find a way um, not to use energy to create energy at a cost level. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, but, but hydrogen is a very clean fuel. It is being used in some applications around the world. And it holds probably the biggest potential for replacing fossil fuels, especially for things that can't use stored uh, batteries, uh, energy. So I think that that's an opportunity for Atlantic Canada that uh, will create um, economic benefit for our region and jobs. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that that will be uh, something that we'll be able to follow. But hydrogen, as Neil describes it, is basically energy storage. In other words, you take electricity, you use a large amount of electricity to create the hydrogen, 
and then the hydrogen is relatively easy to store and transport and so on. So you're right, it requires a source of cheap electricity, and that's where the potential of small modular reactors comes into play because those can create enormous amounts of energy at relatively reasonable cost and very stable source of power. So the connection between SMRs and hydrogen developed in this region is pretty strong. If you have to import all your electricity from Quebec or from Labrador uh, to create hydrogen, then the costs, I think, uh, become problematic. So there's lots of linkages here, and and Neil's conversation shines a light uh, on a lot of that. Yeah, and I guess I just want to get back to your point uh, for our listeners that, you know, this will not be cheap to... uh, convert to non-fossil energy anywhere, uh, there will be a financial impact on every consumer, every Canadian, every person living in Atlantic Canada. We do not know yet what that cost will be. But just as an aside, with the rising cost of gasoline, there's some prediction um, that will go to $2 a liter uh, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, part of that will be the cost of uh, carbon. Um, I've seen various estimates. I don't know if they're right or wrong. Seventeen, eighteen cents a liter uh, to price in the you know the cost of carbon. That's coming to our region. It's already in BC, as you know. The cost of gasoline in BC is about twenty cents, roughly uh, a liter higher than it is in this region, and that's coming, folks. That's not that far away. So I actually, you know, as an economist, like that idea. The only concern I have is that is that it, it falls the hardest on the poorest in society and on the middle class. So what government should be doing is reducing other taxes or finding other ways to reduce people's costs, even as energy costs go up. And then therefore, people can make the transition to greener forms of energy, to hybrid vehicles, to electric vehicles. Uh, without having this huge burden, cost burden put on on the individual. So this, who's going to pay for all of this transition? Is it the taxpayer, the rate payer, uh, uh, and and uh, you know, or 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 the individual, right? And so we'll see uh, we'll see how that plays out. But I think we've made a good start here with our conversation with Neil Jacobson, and I think moving forward, you and I will be discussing with a number of energy related. Uh, experts in the region to try and nail this down a little further in the weeks and months ahead. So why don't we get into the conversation that we had with Neil? It's a very interesting conversation. Uh, I think that people will learn uh, a lot about what uh, what's going on in energy in our region. And also, uh, importantly, the Atlantic Center for Energy is a really important player and could be a, a, a very important player going ahead. So here's our interview with uh, Neil Jacobson. Neil Jacobson, what is the Atlantic Center for Energy? What's its mission? How is it funded? Yeah, D- David, uh, good, good question. Uh, we like to see the or view the center as a meeting ground. Uh, the center provides a unique forum for government, uh, the education and research sectors, industry, and the community at large to foster partnerships and proactively engage in energy-related issues here in Atlantic Canada. Um, I think we're, we're, we're really proud of the fact that the, the center has developed third-party credibility with public and private sector stakeholders and, and, and the media, and it's become a go-to resource for commentary and input with respect to energy-related policy, planning, and regulatory issues here in Atlantic Canada. So who, how do you get, how are you funded? Do you, you have members? 
We, we are a membership organization, so we have a, a pretty diverse group of, of members. Um, they cover a really large geographic footprint, um, and and, um, and they cover basically all forms of energy, you know, from uh, emerging sources of energy, uh, such as small modular reactors to more traditional utilities, uh, such as AMERA and Nova Scotia Power and NB Power and Liberty Utilities and... Uh, and, and and as well, um, you know, we have Heritage Gas, which is a, a recent member, recent I guess recently joined as a member of the center, uh, to some smaller um, entities uh, such as St. John Energy and and uh, the Port of Beldoon is also a member. So that's not a fully inclusive list, but we, we do have a really diverse membership. Now, Neil, you and I have known each other for, I, I was thinking about this the other day, I think 25 years, so I know you well, but some in our audience may not. Can you just give us a little bit of your personal history and how you ended up as a energy analyst or a senior guy at the Atlantica Center for Energy? Yeah, I, I should say my my work with the center is is, is a part time role. I'm uh, I, I I don't know how you describe the term if I'm semi retired, but um, I, I have a, a fairly lengthy career that involves uh, the private sector, the public sector, economic development, uh, the energy sector, and government administration. So. I retired um, from the city of St. John as the deputy city manager just before the pandemic hit. Uh, and since then, I've been really fortunate to do some things I really, really enjoy. I, um, I do a little bit of teaching at UNB. I have a, a small um, sort of consulting business, and uh, I serve as the senior policy consultant for the Atlantica Center for Energy. So um, I, I've always enjoyed uh, working in the energy space, and uh, I, I think it's a uh, it's a very challenging time, but it's also uh, a really fascinating time in, in terms of the energy sector and, and the, in particular, the convergence of, of energy and environmental policy. Well, Neil, you're a lot like me. Uh, you're repurposed in life and uh, <laughs> doing new things, which uh, keeps life very interesting, as you know. We're always interested in looking at the economic impact of a sector uh, and trying to uh, provide uh, information uh, to our listeners on the scope and size of the sector. So I wonder if you can articulate uh, for our audience uh, you know, how big is the energy sector in Atlantic Canada in terms of maybe a uh, number of people who might be employed in this sector and uh, maybe the economic impact in terms of expenditures uh, might be uh, for the region? Sure, sure, Don. Um, just, just, I guess, a few highlights. Uh, I, I don't think uh, the general public really understand the, the economic impact and the reach of the energy sector in this region. Uh, it's um, worth it was worth uh, around 14 billion dollars in terms of uh, GDP impact and, and that's uh, current. Um, if, if you you look at uh, GDP as a share of the total economy, uh, it's six uh, percent here in New Brunswick, which is really significant, three percent in Nova Scotia, one uh, percent in PEI. but and this is a figure that that's really interesting is is it's uh, 37% of the gdp in newfoundland labrador very much a reflection of of offshore activity uh, energy is the top export industry by value in both newfoundland labrador and new brunswick and um, we've seen over 13 billion dollars of investment over the past 5 years i guess in in previous decades we've seen much more investment than that but that 13 billion is is a reflection of lower uh, lower churchill falls uh, you know, additional um, capital projects by uh, NB Power, Nova Scotia Power, 
Uh, Irving Oil does annual turnarounds here at the at the refinery in in St. John. Um, so so you know there's there's in terms of direct employment, the estimate of sixteen thousand direct jobs, and that doesn't include indirect or induced jobs. Uh, some big economic uh, multipliers, uh, huge ones in in Newfoundland Labrador. For every one direct job, there are four supported in the supply chain and through induced efforts. Uh, and um, you know the, the other the other piece of this too is the electricity sector in New Brunswick. And just just a quick comment on my my home community. It's it uh, it uh, um, uh, Saint John has one of the highest proportions of electric utility workers in Canada. So that's that's something that I don't think a lot of people realize, but. When you look at St. John Energy, you look at NB Power and Point LaPro and the Bayside and Colson Coal Power Plants, uh, Irving Pulp and Paper is a large biomass uh, plant at Reversing Falls, and you have TransCanada that operates a cogen plant at the Irving Oil Refinery. So these are huge, huge impacts. And, and again, I'm not sure they're, they're as widely understood as, as uh, they should be here in the region. Neil, as we go through our conversation today, we're going to try to get from you your thoughts around whether or not the sector will continue to be an economic driver in the way it is now, but with new sources of energy, uh, because there is, obviously, we have the, the, all of the things going on now to reduce carbon emissions and the, the, the timing around oil and gas and so on. So we'll get to all of that, but I wanted to start the conversation. One of the things we're trying to do here is, is enlighten people about with facts about energy and about the transition to net zero by 2050. And that's one of the things that I'm passionate about. And so I wanted to ask you first about the electrification of the transportation system, or I know you're big into hydro yourself, or not hydro, hydro but hydrogen. So um, there was a big piece in The Economist this week that suggested that maybe the entire trucking sector uh, might be more geared toward uh, hydrogen as an energy source, air transportation, and so on. But can you give us a sense, what, what is the timeline here for the conversion of the uh, transportation system off of uh, fossil fuels-based energy? Yeah, no, look, I think it's a, it's, it's a really interesting question. And I, I too, read the uh, article this week in The Economist, and I, I describe it as a coming-of-age piece and, and a significant acknowledgement of, of hydrogen's uh, potential. Um, we also have uh, a big announcement here in the region tomorrow. Um, the uh, Atlantic Hydrogen uh, Alliance will be formally introduced. Uh, so I won't take any, any thunder away from that, but it's, it's nice to see our region um, embracing um, hydrogen's potential. Uh, I, I, um, uh, you, you mentioned uh, electrification and, and, uh, and the transportation system. Uh, I, I guess it would be my view that passenger vehicles will increasingly uh, transition to electric vehicles or EVs. We are already seeing the build out of EV infrastructure in Europe and more so now here in, in North America. But, but uh, I suspect it will come with some major supply chain and economic disruptions. And uh, just a, a real life personal example, I, I know a lot of people now are, are starting to seriously explore electric vehicles or plug-in hybrids. We... we um, uh, I guess our family ordered um, a plug-in hybrid Toyota vehicle about six months ago, but uh, we, we were told that we may have to wait an, another year or a year and a half to actually get delivery of the vehicle. So um, I don't think this transition is, is going to come easily, um, and, and I think there'll be a lot of disruption. 
um, I do think hydrogen has some significant potential with respect to heavy transportation applications, including the, the trucking and marine um, sector. And, and just a bit of a shout out to Alberta. Uh, I think they've done a, a really, a really good job of embracing hydrogen and, and exploring the art of the possible. And they're developing hydrogen transportation corridors for um, uh, trucking uh, and, and the works uh, being led by the Transition Accelerator, which is doing some, some really, really interesting work. So I, I think it's 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 coming. It's going to pick up speed, and um, I think it'll be um, fairly widespread and and locked in by twenty thirty would be would be my take on it. And and I guess my last point would be around um, transportation would be the the absolute essential requirement for Atlantic Canada to be a key component and participant in in emerging national EV and hydrogen transportation networks. Can you tell us quickly? What is the economic opportunity with hydrogen? Is that is it the production of hydrogen? So instead of producing refined oil, you're actually producing hydrogen. So what is the economic, other than as a, a transportation fuel, what is the, we're not going to be manufacturing the cars or the engines here. So what is the economic opportunity for this region from hydrogen? Um, I, I guess at a, at a high level, hydrogen can do what electricity will have difficulty achieving. Um, it will help decarbonize hard-to-abate sectors such as industrial processes, heavy transportation, the marine sector, and, and, and power generation. So I, I think it can be um, a complement to, to the electrification process. Um, I, I think it, it, we anticipate that it will be an essential part of the region's energy mix um, uh, you know, as we, we focus on reaching net zero emissions. Um, and, and um, you know, it won't be the answer to everything, but, um, you know, there's some projections that it could end up being about 20% of the region's energy mix. Um, and I guess one of the big advantages is it's um, a really unique fuel in, in its ability to store energy. So, you know, you, you can take intermittent renewable energy such as, as, as uh, wind um, and you know, transform it into green uh, hydrogen and, and you're able to store it and utilize it to transport it and store it and, and use it at a, at a later time. So, so the economics are, are, are still challenging, in particular with regards to green hydrogen, but um, it, it really could play an important role in terms of grid scale energy storage as we go forward. Because you need electricity to produce it. So what you're saying is you need cheap electricity to be able to create the hydrogen, which then can be used in a variety of different to, uh, activities. Yeah, absolutely. You're basically converting um, electricity into a different energy form, hydrogen, which has different applications and it has the ability to be stored. You know, the the whoever figures out large scale uh, energy storage is 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 really going to transform the energy sector here. Right? You know, there's been some some smaller scale success. Um, there, there's been some really neat developments with regards to distributed generation um, and, and even even unique ways of using EVs in terms of, of your home energy usage and, and, and even home energy storage. But um, whoever figures this out on a large scale and, and hydrogen has a potential to be part of that solution is, is really going to transform things. Uh, Neil, we uh, recently had a <clears throat> interesting podcast with the head of Noya uh, who, uh, you know, talked about uh, the life uh, expectancy of the oil and gas industry, which looks like it's going to be <clears throat> mid-century for sure, 
at least before we start to you know be uh, off that uh, energy shore, uh, source <clears throat> but we are in the process of greening our grid obviously there's hydro work there's tidal there's talk about small nuclear you know um when can we expect that we will be totally off fossil fuels and the generation of electricity in our region? No, well, that's a, another really good question. Um, you know, I, I, I think we, sh- we should not lose sight of the fact that we will continue to re- rely on uh, refined petroleum products for, for decades to come, albeit uh, declining quantities of, of, uh, of petroleum products. So, uh, you know, I, I, I know the target, the official target that, that Canada is focused on is net zero by 2050. Um, so, um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of projections about, you know, when we actually hit peak oil usage and, 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 and here in this country, how we um, sort of slowly wean, off, or wean ourselves off of refined petroleum products. Uh, but but I, I, I think um, we, we need to remind ourselves that, that they will be around for, for quite a while. And, and uh, quite frankly, Canada does a great job in terms of both the upstream and the downstream oil and gas industry. And for full disclosure, I started off my professional career many, many, many years ago working in Alberta um, in the oil patch for uh, Amico Petroleum and Drayton Valley and Canadian Superior Oil in, in Edmonton. You know, for, for decades, Canadian oil and gas companies have led the world in terms of environmental, social, and government's, uh, governance principles. And, and, and you know, we, we operate with the highest environmental standards in the world. So, um, you know, is, is there going to be a requirement for oil and gas? Yes. And, and quite frankly, I, I, I hope, um, you know, Canada remains a supplier of, of uh, oil and, and gas globally, but also you know, becomes um, an even more important supplier here in, in, in North America. So it's, it's, it's not going to, we're not, it's not going to transition overnight, but um, it, 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 um, it, it, it'll take some time, but um, you know, clearly as we move toward net zero, um, we, we will be um, transitioning away from uh, petroleum products. Well, uh, certainly coal generated electricity is the target Uh at least in Nova Scotia, and I think uh, in New Brunswick as well. Um, And uh, it looks like uh, it will be replaced by a combination of uh, green fuels, including wind, solar, um, more hydro coming hopefully through the Atlantic Loop, uh, through Quebec and uh, Ontario, uh, uh, Newfoundland, and small nuclear as well. So there's a lot of alternatives that are being kind of looked at. Which one do you think has the biggest potential in terms of moving us to a green, more green generation of electricity over the next, let's say, 20 or 30 years? Don, my my, my, uh, very simple answer to that is uh, all of the the above. Um, Hmm. I I think it's going to take everything um, that, that, that we have access to in terms of clean renewable technologies to, to be able to get us to the point where we can achieve uh, net net zero by 2050. Even, even the goal of, of 40 to 45% reductions by 2030, the national goal, uh, extraordinarily challenging. 
Um, you know, especially given the fact that, uh, you know, since 1985, I think we've only been able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by about 1% nationally. So mm-hmm. this region is a leader, but but nationally, it's only about 1%. So I think we're going to need all of the above, um, hydro, renewables, nuclear. I'm a firm believer that, that nuclear will, will need to play an important role in terms of our clean energy mix as we transition to net zero. Enhanced transmission, um, I mentioned earlier, energy storage, I think it's going to be huge. Um, and I also think that um, um, some of the emerging technologies, I think tidal energy will, will, will ultimately achieve commercial viability, especially as, as we see uh, accelerated or, or increasing uh, carbon pricing. Um, so, you know, I, I suspect the Atlantic Canadian grid will have largely moved beyond hydrocarbons by 2030. I think you mentioned Nova Scotia and, and their drive to eliminate coal by, by 2030. Big question mark right now is is Envy Power's Beldoon coal-fired plant, which would that would need to be uh, subject to an equivalency agreement with the government of Canada to secure a life extension beyond 2030. Um, you know, I know the plant has a life plan, a life step span that'll extend to 2040. I, I I don't know the outcome of that discussion, but I, I think it's going to be a challenging one with the, with the government of Canada given the recent re-election of the, the Liberal government in Ottawa. I know they're they're firmly committed to to eliminating coal by 2030. So, um, um, you know, I guess that's my take. All, all of the above. Um, I, I think nuclear and SMR is really an interesting technology that has potential in this region, but it will be a highly competitive global race to commercialization. There's two f- quick follow up questions that I wanted to uh, get you get your opinion on. One is the Atlantic Loop, which a lot of people are not paying much attention to. This is a an idea, as I understand it, to tap into um, uh, an energy uh, uh, market uh, outside the region in Quebec and bring, um, you know, have have energy going both ways, I guess. So in the event of uh, disruptions, uh, it would be available. There's some talk about accessing Quebec hydro uh, through that Atlantic loop. Can you talk about where is that where is that project right now? I, there was recent news uh, that it was going to cost billions of dollars in transmission um, uh, investment to make that happen. But is, is that really something that, that is likely to happen anytime soon? You know, look, I, I have to admit I'm, I'm not um, very close to, to or the, uh, the, the details around the project. My sense is, from what's being reported in the public realm, is that the, the planning is progressing. Um, clearly, there's um, you know an engineering design component to this. There's a market component to this. And there's a political component to this. Um, I, I would kind of step back and 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 maybe I guess provide a bit of a higher level perspective. I I do believe that that we 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 desperately need to 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 focus on regional transmission planning, not just here in Atlantic Canada, but but throughout the international Northeast region. So this is, I think, Ontario, Quebec, Atlantic Canada, and, and New England. And, and um, um, you know, our, our, our abilities to succeed as, as, as a larger region here is, is, is going to revolve around the ability to flow uh, clean and renewable energy sources throughout the region. Um, it's been interesting to to follow Hydro Quebec, which is obviously a real success story. But you know, they they used to really focus on on being an exporter of of uh, electricity into New England, 
but now they're they're really positioning themselves as the battery of the international northeast region. So, uh, uh, you know, if, at, at times when there's surplus renewables in New England, and and if they they develop their their offshore to the scale that they plan on, um, you know, Quebec can absorb those renewables, can help balance them. But also provide hydro um, when those uh, those uh, intermittent resources are, are not responding or, or or basically not producing at, at a at a high level. So, it, it I, I would suggest that that um, you know the premise around the Atlantic Loop project is is timely. Um, I think it's really encouraging to have five Eastern Canadian provinces working together. Um, I, I, I would just suggest that I think that the timing is right to be looking even more broadly and, and, and really focusing in on New England and, and even Ontario and, and, and looking at how, how we can try and make these systems work even more effectively. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, you also mentioned uh, tidal uh, power. It's kind of been fits and starts, obviously. Uh, uh, Nova Scotia Power, uh, you know, recently... Um, uh, sh- shuttered its uh, project uh, that w- that had going uh, down uh, near Annapolis. Uh, it has the potential of enormous energy, but again, realistically, w- what time frame is possible to harness the power of of you know these tides? Yeah, no, I think it's another another technology that that will continue to evolve. In, in the in, in this decade, um, you know, in particular, you know, as the urgency of, of decarbonization continues to accelerate, I, I, I think we're going to have to actively pursue all the technologies that are on the table. So, and so I, I, I think it, 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 it will continue to evolve. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but I know there's a, a small company in, in Maine that has a test site in Eastport, but um, a, a present throughout, throughout the state of Maine. And uh, that's that's actually doing some interesting work in 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 developing small scale commercial applications and 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 I know they just won an award from the Maine Inter- International Trade Center this year and and um, you know I was just following what the company's doing and to me it was um, it was a, a a really encouraging sign to see uh, a company in this sector uh, here in North America that that's that's really starting to progress forward with. Real life applications and 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 the commercialization of the technology, albeit on a small scale. So, I I, I um, it's had some fits and starts, but I, I wouldn't underestimate its its potential on a go forward basis. And and um, you know, it's also one of those technologies that that you know here in this region we we've, we've been leaders. Uh, you know, and that that's that that's pretty powerful. Uh, uh, you know, when you look at what's going on around the world. Neil, I wanted to bring you back to oil and gas for just a minute. I know Don mentioned our conversation with Sherlyn Johnson from Noya. Um, I just want to get you, pin you down a little bit more around the potential for Canada. I mean, it seems to me there's a surplus of oil and gas around the world. Of course, we're seeing the problem right now with the distribution or getting that oil and gas to markets, but there's a surplus in the Middle East, in South America, in Africa, and so on. Um, why, what is the value proposition for Canada? Like why, how can we compete for our share of that diminishing oil and gas market through 2050 and potentially even beyond 2050? 
Yeah, no, it, it's a fair question, and quite frankly, I think it's it's a frustrating question. I, I um, again, I'm I'm a little biased because I've I've actually you know spent some time working in the oil and gas sector, and and I'm incredibly proud of, you know, Alberta is, seems to be get get seems to get to beat up pretty hard these days, and in, in you know in terms of it's it's some of its more traditional in, in, industries and in, in the oil and gas sector, but. You know, it's been such a backbone of the Canadian economy, and 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 um, you know the, the foundation of our transfer payments over 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 many decades. Um, and 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 I I guess one of the challenges is 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 yeah, crude oil is treated as a commodity, and and unfortunately I, I don't know that that um, you know the 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 way that the Canadian industry operates in terms of environmental, social, and government uh, governance principles, ESG principles. Um, are are fully valued in, in in the price of of crude oil, and in fact, you know, we we've got a lot of crude oil that's landlocked, that's basically sold at a discount uh, to the United States. So, it's 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 been challenging for for Canadian industry, and and um, and quite frankly, it's also I I think a, a huge failure, a national failure that we we haven't been able to to cite and and develop a national energy corridor that moves crude oil and natural gas and electricity and, and, you know, going forward, hydrogen east, west. Um, and, uh, you know, and that, you know, here on the East coast, we're largely reliant on, uh, imported oil from, from, uh, conflict zones around the world. So, um, it, it's a challenging one. I, 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 um, I, I hope that, uh, you know, as the world progresses towards a, a cleaner and greener economy that, that we begin to value, um, you know, the environmental standards that we operate under here. And, and quite frankly, I hope, you know, this region, we, we, we also um, get a sense of, of, you know, the, 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 the economic impacts and, and, and uh, you know, Noya would be a great spokesperson for, for the, the quality of, of the offshore operations here in Eastern Canada and and um, you know it's it's a lower carbon crew that they're producing as well. So, um, uh, and I guess the last comment I'd make is is um, you know the the one <laughs> it's been a challenge at the gas pumps, but you know the one positive light for the industry though has been the the rapid rise in crude oil prices again, which which will obviously have a huge impact with regards to um, the fiscal situation in Newfoundland Labrador, uh, in Alberta, and also nationally. Yes, uh, Neil, uh, I want to just uh, switch tracks here for a second and talk about uh, carbon sequestration. Um, you know, I've done a lot of work with the Irvings over the years. Um, you know, they kept touting their forest as a great opportunity to get credit transfers to New Brunswick because of the uh, carbon that's absorbed by the forest in the province and I guess elsewhere. What is the real opportunity for carbon capture in Atlantic Canada? Well, I, I think that very much lies on on uh, the heavy industry that operates in, in this this region and their, their assessment of the opportunity. But I, I have seen some preliminary assessments that the subsurface in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia could support heavy industrial carbon capture and sequestration activities. Um, the, the Maritimes Basin is considered low risk for seismic activity and, and you know, would make a, a good candidate from a geology perspective for long-term and large-scale storage. Um, you know, but I, I, I guess I would like to point out the fact that we, we don't exactly have a great track record here in, in, uh, in the Maritimes in utilizing our underground resources. 
Uh, you know, if you look at uh, New Brunswick's uh, natural gas uh, reserves, as well as the Alton uh, Salt Cavern Project in Nova Scotia, um, you know, so so I think the potential there is for in for in in, in ground uh, storage, um, but I, I I think it really comes down to uh, you know the economics for our, our large industry here in this region in terms of you know what makes the most most sense for them. I would like to uh, be an interesting exercise um, for the two of you just to, to figure out what uh, our, our um, natural gas, the value of our potential natural gas reserves would be in, uh, given today's natural gas prices. Um, I, I, I think it would be a staggering uh, dollar figure in terms of what potentially is uh, under our feet here in New Brunswick. But I, I know that's a, that's a whole nother podcast. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> Yeah, it's a that one's particularly complicated because, you know, the the argument would go: the more carbon uh, sequestration or capture we can do, then the more oil and gas or fossil fuel based energy, energy we can continue to pump. So they're kind of both uh, at odds with each other. Although that Economist article talked about the fact that we, even if we do get to net zero, we're going to have to bring down uh, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. So it'll be interesting. But I guess your concern if I'm hearing you correctly, is that you're worried there's going to be a NIMBY effect even with that type of thing, if we're trying to pump large volumes of carbon uh, uh, dioxide into the ground, that it could uh, create NIMBY effects? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, that's a fair point, David. uh, Yeah, that would be a fair point. And and Don, I I know you you mentioned... um, uh, J.D. Irving, but um, it's... um, I also have... um, a bit of a personal passion or interest with regards to, to uh, the opportunities that bioenergy present this region and enter forestry sector, um, you know, in, including district energy applications. I, I um, a family in Denmark and, and on a number of occasions, I've had the opportunity to visit district energy uh, facilities in, in Denmark. And, um, you know, I think there's some great work underway by the Wood Pellet Association. Um, there's a, an individual in Nova Scotia, uh, Jamie Stephen, and Torchlight Bioresources, and companies such as JDI and Group Savoie and the Shaw Group. Um, um, so, you know, there's 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 an opportunity where we we can continue to add value to that whole forestry cycle by by effective use of our of our of our forestry waste products or bioproduct, uh, you know, uh, bioproducts and and. Um, Instead of shipping pellets all over the world to to resolve or support uh, clean energy applications in Europe and Asia, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could start to use those pellets and and some of that uh, biomass uh, here in in the Maritimes? And you know, we, we we have all the potential to do that, and and it's a huge resource. And quite frankly, the benefits would also flow to uh, rural maritime maritimers, which and maritime communities, which I think would is is something that we badly need. I, I just wanted to mention uh, uh, something that uh, that you probably are aware of. There's a company in, in Nova Scotia called Sustain Technology, uh, who have uh, uh, an operating plant in Chester, uh, and uh, they're converting garbage to pellets mm. and liquefied synthetic fuel. And wow. uh, yeah. if it works out, they say they're going to be able to divert more than 90% that currently goes into landfill into pellets and synthetic fuel. Yeah. What do you think about that idea? 
Yeah, well, well, um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's um, that, that's that's extremely interesting. When you look at some of these emerging technologies, in some cases, you can't even keep up with them. Some some of them have been recycled over the years and now are are actually becoming um, feasible. And 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 I just want to, I think it's a good time just to share a comment. Uh, we had a workshop with um, uh, Professor Larry Hughes from um, Dalhousie University. And and it was really interesting. He's a he's a very interesting individual and very very knowledgeable. And but um, he made the comment that um, you know as we sort of pursue this this or more aggressively pursue the the, the path to net zero and 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 uh, decarbonization, that in all likelihood fifty percent fifty percent or over fifty percent of the technologies required to get us there do not even exist today. So think about that. Hmm. You know, 50% of the technologies to get us there don't even exist. Um, so, you know, that does really reinforce the need uh, for this region to, 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 you know, to stay um, at the leading edge of, of, um, of clean and renewable energy technologies and, and really understanding this, this transformation and investing in this transformation. But that's all the more reason why we have to have a, a fair and open conversation about this issue. So Greta Thunberg, who everybody loves, who's an advocate for, you know, the reduction of the use of fossil fuels, said the other day, forget 2050, forget 2040, we just need to be off them by 2030. And at some point in the future, Don, I'm going to write a column called, should we put Greta in charge? Because I don't think the younger generation understands what that would do to the economy, but what that would do uh, mostly to the poorest countries and the poorest people in, in, in the richer countries. So I don't think there's really any, uh, any real understanding of that. And I think Neil's comment about the technologies, not even having, not even knowing fully how to get to net zero by 2050 is a very interesting one. But it does bring me to my next question around who's going to pay Neil. Because a few weeks ago, no, a few months ago, uh, the former premier of Nova Scotia, Ian Rankin, announced a big renewable energy project in Nova Scotia. And I was shocked at the language he used. He said it was going to make electricity much cheaper in Nova Scotia. It was going to make the province much more competitive. And on and on and on, it was going to create 6,000, I think, new jobs. And there was just an amazing flurry of economic benefits from that project. And I thought to myself you know, he's not telling people the right story, right? He's, he's not t telling people that we'll need to have all this uh, old style generation in reserve to offset when the wind's not blowing. He's not telling people the impacts on the grid or anything else. He's not telling people that those 6,000 jobs are mostly just an installation. Uh, and what, whereas when you kill these uh, coal-fired plants, you're taking away hundreds of high-paying annual jobs. So all of this stuff, and I guess my question for you is, Forget about the politics for a minute. Who's going to pay for this transition? Like who? Who we're going to we're going to we got we have to transition the fishing fleet. We have to transition all these homes that are heated by oil and gas. We have a massive amount of work to do. Tens of billions of dollars of investment in in household investment and business investment between now and twenty fifty. Who's going to pay? Yeah, David. Another great question and and quite frankly i share your concerns I, and and the center shares your concerns and governments around the, the world continue to advance extremely aggressive decarbonization targets and quite frankly i suspect that they will become even more aggressive um in in terms of the sort of post cop 26 world and that's coming up really really quickly 
Um, the, the challenge is there is a growing disconnect between increasingly aggressive GHG reduction targets and the actual policies and plans to get us there, and especially an informed public discussion with respect to the transitional impacts, benefits, and costs. Uh, there will be clear winners, and there are going to be some clear losers. And just to cite a little bit of data here, but um, the Fraser Institute um, did an analysis um, back in March around the implications of a $170 ton carbon price here in Atlantic Canada. Um, so I just a couple real quick excerpts from it, but the, uh, the federal government's plan to impose $170 per ton carbon tax in place nationally by 2030 will result in a combined loss of 4,434 jobs in Atlantic Canada, uh, 2,190 jobs in New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia's economy is projected to contract by 2.4%, New Brunswick's by 2.2%, PEI by 1.7%, and Newfoundland Labrador by 1.2%. So there's been a huge gap in, in all of this uh, with regards to what are those real impacts. You know, clearly there, there are costs associated with not doing anything either in terms of the, the, the increasingly um, challenging impacts around climate change and, 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 um, and, and some of which have the potential to be catastrophic. But, but we need to have an informed discussion around impacts and costs. Um, you know, just, just one other real-life example here. I, I, I hear a lot from people um, even this week family and friends and, and and you hear it in the media you know the concern around the price of gasoline here in in canada well i i i, I keep telling people i said well you haven't seen anything yet because the reality is 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 if you look at uh, carbon pricing and that 170 uh, a ton uh phased in target and then you look at the federal clean fuel standard we're, we are in all likelihood going to experience um, an increase of 50 cents per liter here in Canada uh, to reflect carbon pricing and, and, the, and the clean fuel standard, which will be applied to all petroleum-based transportation fuels. So, you know, you, you, you think about, you know, the filling up your tank and, and, and um, you know, we, we may see, uh, you know, days of $150 or $200 or $300 fill-ups uh, for, for your pickup truck. Um, and that may be, not be that far off. That may be a few years away. So, so you, you think about the, what that means for rural Atlantic Canadians who have no choice but to travel long distance for work, school, or medical appointments. And, and you think about what that will also mean for the politics of energy and, and climate change. So um, it's, it, we're, we're headed for some interesting times. And, and uh, who, who pays? I don't have all the magic answers. And, and in some cases... Uh, people instinctively migrate to government paying the bills, but but you know we, we have governments that are uh, fiscally uh, at their limit, you know, in terms of the post-COVID um, world, post-pandemic world. So um, I, I suspect it's going to come down to energy consumers and energy users, and and, um, and and people aren't even equipped right now to be able to make the right choices in terms of future energy use. Well, it just leads us uh, back to the discussion about timetable, I think, Neil. I mean, you know, people need to uh, prepare for what's coming. Nobody knows when the impacts are going to hit. You know, the introductions of EVs, of course, uh, the, the rollout of carbon taxes is happening now. But, you know, it's going to still take, you know, we're going to be in the 30s before most vehicles are going to be either all electric or hydrogen, you know, at least into the 30s, at least a decade away, right? Um, but 
you know, it's all up in the air right now that nobody has a really good timetable. Would you say that's true? I, I would say that's that's true, and 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 um, I I really um, I guess it's a good time to really reinforce kind of one of the center's primary um, themes or recommendations, and that's around regional cooperation. Um, hmm. uh, I, I really believe that the time has come for you know the four Atlantic provinces. They're they're uh, really small jurisdictions from a North American perspective, but the time has come for the four provinces to work in, in a collaborative fashion in terms of shaping um, a, a sound uh, decarbonization strategy. We, we already have a good start. Um, you know, this region is leading the country in terms of GHG emissions reductions, um, you know, doing much better than the country as a whole. But, um, you, you know, we, we, we just can't work in isolation. And, and I know the topic of regional cooperation has been around forever, but you know, I think now is the time um, to 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 create a, a coherent regional strategy um, that uh, will 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 really um, kind of help shape policy and, and regulations and, and and alignment around this this uh, clean energy transition because it, it is going to be truly transformational, and and I do think the sum of the the, the parts is is much stronger than. Than the individual jurisdiction. So I think if you put the four Atlantic provinces together, we've got some substance. Um, we've we've got some 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 potential. Uh, we've, we you know we've got location. We're at the confluence of the international northeast uh, region, uh, northeast and, and the Atlantic Basin. We have some vast natural uh, resources and renewable energy generation potential, especially um, onshore and offshore. Uh, we have a foundation of of real energy innovation here in the region. I could go through a list of, of some of the, the innovations that are taking place, but, you know, SMRs, hydrogen, wind, smart grid technologies, bioenergy, tidal energy. Um, and we also have some very progressive Indigenous uh, and First Nations communities here in Atlantic Canada, which, quite frankly, you know, need to be part of our future decarbonization strategy and, and, and energy plans. Well, Neil, if I, if I could offer a suggestion, I mean, your organization has the opportunity of pulling the provinces together. You know, um, maybe you have to call for a conference of like minds to show up because, you know, we had a hard time getting uh, a unified COVID uh, protocol among the three maritime provinces, Leave, you know, not even thinking about Newfoundland Labrador. It needs a, it, it needs uh, somebody outside to bring them together. A call to action, you know, the setting up of a of some sort of a regional um, body tasked with bringing together the strategy for the region. It's the only way it's going to happen. It might even actually be the Atlantica Energy Center that could play a role in that. So. I would encourage your group to find a way to get the governments together. I mean, you're, you're bringing the independent thought already. Somebody needs to encourage them to take some action on this, because I agree that having a regional strategy makes the most sense. Yeah. And, yeah, and Don, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, Don, that we just released um, a uh, discussion paper on energy regulatory re reform and called it an Atlantic Canadian imperative but you know one of the key recommendations in in the document is that that the um, 
that uh, the Atlantica Center for Energy recommends that the Council of Atlantic Premiers initiate a regional clean energy task force consisting of representatives of all four Atlantic provinces, the Government of Canada, and the region's energy utilities producers to focus specifically on clean energy innovation and potential areas for energy policy alignment, regulatory clarity, regulatory efficiency, regulatory transparent, transparency, and regional regulatory alignment. Um, you know, the, the task force should also be mandated to communicate Atlantic Canada's significant progress in leading the country in reducing greenhouse gas emissions and achieving emerging national international decarbonization targets. So I, I think, you know, so that I think, I think that ties in with, you know, what you just described. And, and we've actually identified that as a concrete recommendation. Right. And, and in fact, I have a, a meeting next week with the Maritimes Energy Association to, to look at how the two organizations can work together to, to drive forward with the recommendations coming out of the discussion paper. So, um, you know, I think the timing is, is, is urgent. And, and um, I also think it's absolutely critical that we begin to speak with a unified voice in Ottawa. Um, otherwise, we, we are be going to become uh, increasingly irrelevant uh, from a policy and planning perspective. And, you know, we, we had a huge battle this spring just ensuring that the federal government and Environment and Climate Change Canada understood the implications of the federal clean fuel standard here in Atlantic Canada, which were by far much more severe than any other region in the country. So, you know, the centre supports a fair uh, and transparent uh, carbon pricing mechanism, um, but, you know, we've we got to make sure that this region is treated equitably and fairly with other parts of the country. And we shouldn't be penalized for, for, for our weaknesses, but we should also be, um, we also should be able to leverage our strengths. So, you know, that's the nature of the work we're doing. But I, I, I agree. And I, I think the only way that you're going to kind of garner true regional cooperation is, is through the premiers. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think you do need to go beyond targets too, and also beyond general things like carbon taxes. I'd like to see somebody, and maybe it's your organization, ultimately put some costs uh, of parameters around some of these transitions, uh, sectoral transitions and so on. Because I think what happens now is that we set a target, but you can set, anybody can set a target. I can say, yeah. you know, the Oilers are going to win the Stanley Cup within three years. Yeah, but if they don't take the steps to get there, they're not going to win the Stanley Cup. They haven't won the Stanley Cup in uh, you know since I was a child. <laughs> so I think the reality is that this is part of the problem. We aren't properly costing out what this is going to or the effort it's going to take. And I understand there's unknowns there, but my big concern here is that people just really don't understand. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen by 2030, by 2040, and into that vacuum comes people saying, don't worry, it's going to be an easy transition, renewable energy, it's going to be great, all kinds of jobs, and, and so on. I got one, I have one last question for you, Neil, before we end, and it starts with a bit of a rant, although I think that was a bit of a rant too, so it's like a rant <laughs> part two. Uh, throughout, throughout history, large-scale change like this has resulted in winners and losers, as you said earlier. I would say the last time this region faced a disruption this big, it was Confederation. Um, I could be wrong about that, but this is this is very, very transformational. So many of our industries rely on energy uh, and, and so on. And as you said, even our rural population. Right. So there's lots of reasons why this is going to be a big deal. And I worry that other jurisdictions are going to steam right, steamroll right over Atlantic Canada. The Saudis can keep their oil so cheap that it doesn't make sense to produce offshore oil. The French are already going to 
talking about taking over the SMR market. Alberta wants to corner the hydrogen market. Uh, uh, Quebec Hydro tried to buy MB Power 10 years ago, and now it looks like they're going to end up supplying 70 or 80% of our electricity without ever having to buy MB Power. So I guess the question for you is, if you look out in your crystal ball 20 years from now, and you and I will be old men, and Don too, we'll have a drink. Uh, do you think we're going to still have a vibrant energy sector in this region come? Let's just let's just go as far as 2040. Or do you think we're just going to see uh, energy production eroding uh, uh, and energy using industry starting to decline and so on? So are you an optimist or a pessimist in terms of energy as an economic driver over the next 20 years in this region? Yeah, David, I, I think your concerns are, are grounded in reality. There is a real risk that our region could be on the tail end of the, the current energy transformation, the global energy transformation. But but I'm going to finish on on, on a optimistic note because I, I would not underestimate our region's potential to evolve and innovate. And, and last night I was thinking about this and I jotted down a few tangible examples. Uh, Nova Scotia's leadership in energy efficiency, efficiency one and, and, and tidal energy. New Brunswick's focus on small modular reactors uh, and where that, how far that's progressed with, with ARC and Moltex over the last uh, year, year and a half. PEI's leadership in developing and integrating wind energy, including the work of uh, WeCan and, or the Wind Energy Research Institute of Canada in North Cape. Um, the Atlantic Hydrogen Announce and, uh, Alliance, which will be formally announced tomorrow with some exceptional leadership from Heritage Gas, Liberty Utilities and Nova Scotia-based OERA. And look, it's, it, it's just phenomenal to see Heritage Gas and Liberty Utilities working so well together. Um, from a community perspective, we, we are also seeing some incredibly strong leadership from Halifax, St. John and their municipal um, electric utility, St. John Energy, Summerside PEI, and the Area or Alternative Resource Energy Authority Partnership in Nova Scotia, which includes Anaganish, Berwick, and Mahone Bay. Um, Quest, I'm a big fan of what Quest is doing. They're leading some transformational work in smaller communities in the region. I'd also suggest uh, really carefully watching the region's major ports who are all shaping strategic visions to be active participants in the global clean energy revolution, including the ports of Halifax, St. John and Beldoon. Um, some real visionary work going on in Beldoon, for example, with respect to an integrated trade, economic development, a clean energy vision, including the build out of a value-added bioenergy with, with pellet cluster. I had previously mentioned bioenergy in our forestry sector. Um, and and uh, some of the work underway there. And, and just to finish off, um, some of the really unique uh, SMEs, or small medium enterprises in, in the region, Nova Scotia-based Carbon Cure, we've heard a lot about what they're doing even yesterday in the news. Uh, Natural Forces, just an amazing company based out of Halifax. The Smart Energy Company here in New Brunswick, uh, Red Rock Power Systems, um, Aspen Camping Association, or AKA and PEI, so, so I'll finish off there. I mean, I, I could go on in terms of that list. So um, I think we have the potential within the region to shape um, a, 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 an exciting energy future and, 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 and be able to, to um, survive and, and, and actually benefit from this transition. But, uh, you know, we, we really need a regional strategy and a regional plan and regional cooperation. Um, and, and we need to start that process now. On that optimistic note, Neil Jacobson, thanks for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. 
Mark Legere and Tyler McLean helped produce this episode. You can subscribe to the show by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.